0: We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As you heard in the headlines, Honolulu uh, Mayor Rick Blaine Giardy announced on Friday the city's plan to relax some of the restrictions in response to the COVID cases trending downward and with fewer hospitalizations. The Hawaii Live Events Coalition rallied last week saying professionally managed events could be COVID safe. Eastwood Center epidemiologist Tim Brown, who tends to be cautious, says he's comfortable with the latest plan.
1: You know, what was announced on Friday was fairly conservative in itself. It's starting gradually. So for example, the UH games will only allow up to a thousand people and require them to be both vaccinated and masked at the same time. But the only quibble I would have with them there is the provision of water uh, if they're not providing straws with it, because people will have to take off their masks to drink the water. And I, I am still concerned about that. But Again, you know, it should be sparse enough crowds in these stands, but I don't think that will be a major issue. So, in general, I think they were fairly conservative. Similarly, I think Mayor Blangiardi on the uh, gatherings, again, was, you know, fairly strict in terms of the sorts of requirements, the limits they were going to place on attendance. The managed events will require a mitigation plan in place, and as long as that does include vaccination and masking, that's fine. If they're eating, then Clearly, you've got to make sure that appropriate spacing is provided, and the plans, I believe, are all eating events have to be outdoors. So again, that's a good thing with proper social distancing. That can be safe. So I think, you know, they took a comparatively conservative approach to opening up, which I believe is the proper way to do this. I think the thing we've got to be careful of with Delta, Delta is extremely contagious. And that means even at the vaccination levels we're at right now, you can still see very, very rapid growth. In fact, Singapore is seeing that right now. Their are actually slightly higher than the rate we are. They're seeing about over 2,000 cases a day right now. And that's that's been an exponential rise literally in the last couple of weeks. So they've gone back, they've reimposed a lot of the restrictions. In fact, their gathering limit is set at two rather than 10 for indoor meetings. So I think, you know, we do have to be cautious. We have to monitor this carefully, but I think what they're doing with outdoor events is a step in the right direction and I think it's the way we have to proceed. Very carefully, one step at a time, monitor what happens for a couple of weeks, make sure no major outbreaks have occurred, then at that point we can move on to the next stage. And I think that's the proper way to reopen with this.
0: We did see early on with the Veterans Home there in Hilo how fast the virus could spread, and we did see the outbreak here in Honolulu on Oahu uh, where uh, uh, the, the Delta variant just spread like wildfire Uh, But at the time when we were talking with healthcare officials, they said, well, you know, we haven't really seen the death count over there. The cases, positive cases are up, but it wasn't like the number of fatals that we saw with the big island.
1: You know, again, you've got to be careful when you look at death numbers. You've got to consider the age of the population you're dealing with. There's no question, even when we're dealing with breakthrough infections, they disproportionately affect the elderly. And those in a care home are generally particularly vulnerable. They're in in indoor settings. They're potentially exposed. They're older and often in poor health, which is part of the reason why they're often in the care home. And so there is, you know, substantially elevated risk of even death from a breakthrough infection for elderly populations like that. So, again, you have to be careful, I think, in looking at where the deaths are occurring when you try to assess what the overall impact will be.
0: We saw this morning uh, in the paper the headlines about the flu numbers. I think officials are a little bit concerned because we're going into the next flu season and they're urging people to get their shots.
1: My recommendation on that is talk to Sarah Campbell because I think those flu numbers are being misinterpreted. What they report is actually influenza and pneumonia deaths. And if you actually look at their reporting on flu, there's virtually no flu reported in the last year. There were a couple of cases toward the very beginning of the flu year, which is like, you know, last September or something. But very little other influenza has been detected. And if you actually look at the national CDC site, they point out that, in fact, the vast majority of that influenza and pneumonia, and they include COVID, they, they call it PIC, pneumonia, influenza, and COVID, they say the vast majority of that is COVID-related. So I really recommend the reporters check with the Department of Health on this because I think the report's being misinterpreted.
0: Okay, so uh, maybe then uh, Dr. Campbell can clarify for us what the true snapshot is.
1: Exactly, because, you know, given, given the extremely low reporting of influenza in the last year, I mean, the COVID mitigation did a very good job pretty much of keeping the influenza epidemic virtually non-existent. And this is one of the reasons why we're so concerned because people will not have the uh, the natural resistance to influenza that they might have built up last year going into this year. And the second concern in influenza is we just don't know which types of influenza are going to be the important ones this year, because we haven't had really a, a major global influenza pandemic to track very closely. So it's it's more of a kind of, you know, guessing game this year as to what goes in and so they've actually put i believe four different brains of influenza into the vaccine for this year but again i want to stress people should get that flu vaccine as soon as possible because the last thing we want to be dealing with this winter is a combination of a flu epidemic with an ongoing COVID epidemic
0: we are hearing you know in the private schools that they are already making plans to schedule shot clinics once the decision comes down from the feds you know for uh, approvals on the uh, five to eleven group No, and
1: I think that's good. We're actually doing, I think, fairly well in that population. I think we're up to about 70 percent plus vaccination in the uh, 12 to 17 year olds. So if we can get the 5 to 11 year olds included in that, then I think that will go a long way toward getting our vaccination rate up extremely high. You know, if you actually look at what's going on with the mandates in most of the country, they're working pretty well. I mean, they've, you know, Field off probably another 10% of the adult population that wasn't getting vaccinated, at least in some of the reports I've seen on the media for national sort of levels. And I think, you know, the mandates are a proper direction to go if you want to keep your workplace safe. I mean, the only alternative would be actually daily testing, where effectively you'd have to probably be using rapid antigen tests and basically testing people as they came into the workplace every day. That would be the only, you know, comparatively safe alternative and even under those circumstances for unvaccinated individuals, you know, or, or for that matter I mean right now, for all individuals, you should be maintaining the mask in any workplace because you know, this is still an extremely contagious virus and we know the effectiveness of our vaccines has decreased in the face of delta, which is a combination of both, you know, probably the delta virus itself but also an impact of waning immunity over time. We know for example that the Pfizer vaccine does tend to see reduced immunity against contracting COVID over a four to six month time frame. And a lot of our elderly at this point, for example, are reaching that six month time frame. So, heck, some of them are already passed that. And so the boosters will be very important for that population. But I do think that basically we're, we're moving in the right direction. And I think it's important we keep stressing that more people need to be vaccinated. You know, ultimately, we want everybody vaccinated because otherwise they are at risk of continued high mortality and hospitalization, and we don't want that. Free up the hospitals basically to deal with a potential flu epidemic that may be coming in the very near future. You you know, it's important to remember, this is still Hawaii. We still have a limited hospital capacity. And you know, I mean, during the normal season, we are running typically at 60% 70% of total hospital capacity, not COVID related. And that COVID was what was pushing us up pretty much to 100% capacity. So we want to avoid that type of a COVID spike again. Vaccination is by far the best way basically to reduce that.
0: Are you COVID worried will. about the holidays coming up, you know, Halloween, I, Thanksgiving?
1: I worry less about Halloween if people are outdoors. I mean, if you know, if they're going around collecting candy outdoors and stuff. And again, if they're masking, you know, because you don't want to be going up to somebody's door without a mask. And mm-hmm. and I don't mean a Halloween mask. I right. A <laughs> a mask. Because there, there is still potential, you know, right. somebody coughs in your face. And yeah. There is potential for COVID transmission there. So I think, you know, we still want people to be safe. People have to take precautions. I think it's important for people to realize masks are going to continue to be part of our life for some time until we get the community levels down very, very low. And even then, I would recommend that we unmask very gradually. You know, those of us who are older, who are potentially at more risk of a breakthrough infection, even if we're vaccinated, I think those of us should probably continue to wear a mask in virtually all settings. But again, you know, the mask need to come off very gradually and we need to monitor what happens as that occurs to make sure that we don't see another major surge like what Singapore is seeing right now.
0: That was East West Center epidemiologist Tim Brown talking about how he thinks the relaxation of COVID restrictions on Oahu are cautious enough. Brown says he would still advocate wearing double masks or the N95 mask to protect against the transmission of the Delta variant. Eolani School is only two months into the academic year, but already it is looking far ahead. The College Prep School announced it has decided to continue to offer free summer school for students, something that grew out of the shutdown triggered by the pandemic. We talked to Tim Catral, head of the school, head of school at Eolani, about the strategy that it hopes will pay off for next fall and how it's managing COVID cases.
2: The academic year is going great for us. With some of the things that we were able to bring online this year, we do a pool testing. We test probably around a thousand members of our community a week. We brought on another level of sensitivity, a more sensitive test than the antigen test. So that allows us to really track down any issue we have if there's somebody who tests positive on our campus. So we're, we're really no longer having to quarantine as much, right? You know, or push groups of kids into quarantine. We just keep testing them. So that's working really well. Vaccination is great. Our vaccination levels for our employees are above 99 percent. For our upper school students, it's around ninety six percent and we just had a booster clinic for all of our employees we're gonna have the Moderna booster clinic in two weeks and then we're looking forward to the five-year-old to eleven-year-old Pfizer clinic in November so we're rolling along great we're really not missing a beat and school looks pretty normal so you're
0: already planning ahead for getting the shots in the arms then when the approval
2: comes yeah we actually already have it scheduled We've worked with our friends at Safeway already, and we'll be releasing to our parent community the two dates for the uh, clinic for that age group.
0: The year's off to a good start. I don't know if you had positive cases or you've been able to manage that.
2: Like any community, we have had cases that have occurred outside of our school. So, you know, we've had employees who came down with COVID. We've had students who've come down with it. We've had students who are close contacts because family members came down with it. But again, we're able to use testing to a degree now that we don't have to just say, this group of kids needs to be in quarantine. We had to say that because there was a lack of information about those kids. We didn't know if they were also potentially positive. But now we have protocols where we can test them, say, every day for four days after a potential exposure to another student. So it's much more proactive than reactive.
0: As you look ahead, you start to plan for the rest of the year, you know, the next calendar year, you'll be starting to bring some of the activities back to normal, so to speak.
2: We've been able to bring quite a few things back to normal. We had our homecoming weekend and a big tradition at Iolani is something called Cheerfest where all the classes come up with their own cheer and they compete with each other and it's really festive and a lot high energy. This year, because we're testing so many students, right, and so many of our upper school students are vaccinated, we felt that it was safe for them to have that activity only outside instead of inside. But it was, you know, large Gatherings of kids cheering. We had masks on them, but that's getting back to normal. And then this weekend, our seniors are going off to Kauai to senior camp. And again, our protocol is we know all of them are, who are vaccinated. And it's a very, very, I think it's above 97% for the senior class. And we'll test them all on the day of departure and then send them off to Kauai to have camp
0: traditionally the school also has its fair. How have you modified that?
2: A lot of what we're doing and the way we feel safe is because we have so much more information. We have so much more information about who's vaccinated. We're able to test our population really well, so we have that information. So this year's version of the fair will be grounded in that. I think our plan is to bring back rides, to have something that's pretty similar to the Iolani Fair normally, except it'll be restricted to the school population. So it will be, you know, the students and probably families and things like that that can attend. We're just not at a place yet where we could say we're open to the public, right, for, for anybody to attend the fair, regrettably.
0: You just had the big HEIS fair, and you folks are going to be extending the summer school, I understand, the free summer school option. Yeah,
2: this is one of those, what did you learn during the pandemic that was good and you want to keep doing? stories. So, we found out last year that 4-day weeks are really great and energize the population and keep people fresh and so we've kept some of those this year. We have four more 4-day four weeks than we would have had in a normal school calendar. And then the summer programs. Last year for all of our students who were newly enrolled students, we offered them free preparatory courses during the summer to get them ready to go to Ilani. And this was, you know, of course, in response to the fact that kids had such a heterogeneous experience with their education last year, right? And we wanted to make sure everybody was on their best foot when they were coming to school. But we found out that it's really great, and our faculty appreciate it very much, and it's very helpful to the students. It helps us get to know them before they step on campus. And so moving forward, we're going to offer that those same summer preparatory courses for free to every newly enrolled student at the school.
0: I mean, that's just, wow, what a
2: gift. Yeah, you know, it's like all schools. You know, we're a rigorous place. We're not the easiest school in the world. And we want to do everything we can for our students to come in and do as well as they possibly can.
0: Is anyone else offering that as far as you know? Any other private school um, in the state? Not that I know mm-hmm. of,
2: no. But, you know, I'm sure people are considering it again. It's, it's just in that bucket of what did we learn from the COVID pandemic that's really good and we want to keep doing as we move forward.
0: You've been able to plan ahead, take precautions with athletics. You know, a lot of people are, are just, you know, watching to see who's taking the first step out there, <laughs> right? You're, you're the guinea
2: pigs. And A lot of it is based on what information you have. We're following the lead of the community in terms of requiring vaccination information for quite a few things that would bring people onto our campus. I just talked to our athletic directors about the Ilani Classic, the big basketball tournament that we have around Christmas time. And we have, I think, five different plans for that, right? Depending on community conditions, it could be as small as each player gets to have two attendees up to the is in great shape and we have the technology in place to register people and we may be at, you know, 75% of normal attendance at that event. You know, we're we're trying to plan out enough different scenarios that will map onto conditions in the future, so that we can reestablish everything we possibly can.
0: You know, we had a conversation uh, with the Hawaii uh, Live Events Coalition. They were talking about, you know, there are different types of plans for people. Let's say who only got one shot. <laughs> you know, they said mm-hmm. in a certain area versus the people who who got two shots. It, you know, it's just interesting all the planning that has to go into putting on an event.
2: Right. There are more layers now. I mean, because, you know, within any of those plans, you have what PPE are you going to require? What kind of social distancing do you want to use depending on community conditions? What kind of vaccination information do you want to gather? For the athletes themselves, what kind of testing protocol do you want to use, you know, every day before competition goes on? So it's a lot more work, but it's remarkably better than last year at this time.
0: And then for the folks that opt in on the free summer school, if they choose Iolani uh, for next year, yeah, I mean, all those protocols, right? The spacing, the mass.
2: Yeah. For our students right now, we don't use a lot of social distancing anymore. You know, that's been replaced by the high degree of vaccination and the kind of pool testing that we do. Again, we're able to be more proactive because we're testing. You know, our, our goal is 25% of our population every week, but with all of our athletics teams and things, it's, it's typically more around 35 to 40% of our whole school population. So we feel like we've got a pretty good handle on what's going on in our community, and that allows us to not have to do you know, as restrictive social distancing. We still kept our tents up outside, so our kids still spend a lot of time outdoors. They eat outdoors and things like that to take advantage of the the extra safety of being outdoors. We still have masks. So our upper school, it's masks indoors. They don't have to wear masks outdoors. And, and again, they're, they're, you know, very highly high degree of vaccination in the in the upper school. In the lower school, the students are younger and not vaccinated yet. So they are wearing masks all the time and wearing face shields when they eat lunch outside.
0: What about the testing costs? How are you having to deal with that? I mean, what do you think your costs are like every week or every month?
2: Yeah, it's expensive. I think the, the Abbott antigen test, the one that we use on the scale of of anywhere from kind of eight hundred to a thousand a week, those are five to ten dollars a piece. And then we were able to add this much more sensitive test, the NAAT test. The NAT test, that one's fifty to sixty dollars each. So we use that when we really want to track any kind of potential issue that could happen on campus, right? The scenario I shared about if a student were on campus and then we found out they were positive and we would test the cohort around that student every day for four days with the more sensitive test. So it's, I think we just purchased 25,000 more of the antigen test, right? So that's you know in in the hundreds of thousands of dollars it is it is costly I'm
0: trying to think i know enrollment is in uh, in many private schools and there's a lot of homeschooling done uh, how are you folks looking at the tuition costs
2: well we're pretty blessed as a school community you know that that elani you know our alums are remarkably supportive of the school we had our first giving day last year we tried to, decided to try out what they do at colleges and have a one day of giving and I think our number was something like $1.6 million given to the school in one day by our community. So, you know, we have a really big tuition gap, which our, our, runs 10 to $12,000 a year. Um, we're, we're just a financially fortunate school. So our tuition, you know, will go up as it has, you know, historically in the past. So, you know, typically just a little under 4% per year is kind of what we look at. And we don't really... Or see any need to vary from that.
0: That was Tim Cuttrell, head of school at Iolani, talking about the decision to continue to offer free scum- summer school for new students attending its campus ne- next fall. control adds that the other thing it decided was worthwhile was streaming its classes, so when a student can't be there in person, he or she won't miss out. The school is not otherwise doing remote learning. <music>
3: Support for Hawai'i Public Radio comes from Hawai'i Care Choices in Hilo, serving East Hawai'i, offering palliative, hospice, and bereavement care with openings for health care and administrative positions. Application at Hawai'iCareChoices.org.
2: HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems, and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs.
3: Support for H.P.R. comes from the 16th Annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival, celebrating story and song virtually, on now through November 4th. Schedule at HawaiiBookAndMusicFestival.com.
0: of the Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the election redistricting underway. Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us with more. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. So, we just did the big census count, right? And so they, they right. kind of need to figure out how they're going to redraw, and remap uh, the districts.
4: Right, and now the fun begins, the political fun that is. So the background on this is the census uh, happens once a decade, of course, and uh, in the year following the actual census, The reapportionment uh, events happen. Basically, the state and the counties each do their own reapportionment process. Um, The state does that for the congressional district, for the House, and for the Senate in the legislature. And then the counties do that for the city council or county councils, depending on what you're talking about. So today we're talking about the state effort, um, which is where the work is being done by a nine-member commission. Uh, Eight of those members are selected by uh, either the House Speaker or the Senate President. Uh, or the House and Senate minority leaders. so you could see that this is going to be a very political process, yeah
0: Well, what I uh appreciated with your story is that you gave us the backstory of uh you know previous uh, remapping and, and some of the the losers uh, and the winners in, in those races.
4: Yeah, most of us don't pay too much attention to this because it only happens once a decade and then it's quickly forgotten. But uh, for the folks who are uh, that feel victimized by it, they, they, there's a lot of bitterness that can, can linger for many years. So the Republicans, uh, in years past, um, reapportioned. They would argue that reapportionment was used to, to ice them out of districts or make it harder for them to win re-election or to get elected. Um, and But nowadays, because the Republicans uh, have so few seats already in the legislature... The consensus seems to be that this is really about the Democrats, which Democrats are in what faction and which Democrats win and which ones uh, don't don't win or, or, or lose in reapportionment. Yeah.
0: yeah, it is kind of funny. I mean, you know, this state has been a predominantly, uh, you know, a Democratic state. Uh, and and actually, I think now I think we have some of the fewest seats held by uh, Republicans uh, ever.
4: <laughs> pretty pretty much. That's about right. So you've got four in the House, left uh, Republicans, four out of 51 members, and in the Senate, you've got one senator out of 25. So what ends up happening then? Um, I mean, maybe, maybe look at the numbers for a second. The big picture is that the population on Oahu in particular has shifted and has moved out toward the Eva and Kapolei area, which makes sense because that was all part of the plan for the second city. Um, but what that's done is, as you, the, the commission now is tasked with redrawing the districts so that each district for the House and Senate seats are approximately equal in population. Well, with the population shifting the way it has in the past decade, that means that they're going to have to stretch the districts in town and basically compress the districts out in uh, Eva, Eva Beach, Kapolei, because they've got too many people in them now. So that causes a big shift. And one of the things that we're hearing is that it is likely that one of the town districts, one of the districts in East Honolulu, will be abolished completely and a new district will be created in Ewa.
0: Yeah, that, that is uh, curious. I mean, there are a number of Republicans, uh, you know, that are, uh, um, you know, moving out to that area. And, and, and uh, so the numbers, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this plays out and, and who actually gets in.
4: Absolutely. It, it'll be interesting to see. And, and, and who gets put with who in what district? Yeah. Uh, when When you put two incumbents together, it can be very difficult for them.
0: Yeah. And the fact that, uh, you know, you're getting into the nuances uh, of the Democrats and, and whose faction that they're siding uh, with and, and who prevails at the end.
4: Right. And did you just use one example? Um, we're we're hearing it's it's not final yet and there's a long way to go in the process. But we're hearing that two Democrats who had their differences with House Speaker Scott Psyche, and those would be Matt Lopresti and Sharon Haar, Um, there's some talk of of lumping them together in one district, which obviously would mean either one of them would have to move or one of them would be voted out of office because they can't both represent the same district. So those are the kinds of things that are hanging in the balance over these next next few weeks and months as the commission tries to do its work.
0: Okay, so if people want to weigh in?
4: If people want to weigh in, they'll be unveiling the new maps on Thursday um, in the Reapportionment Commission, which is under the Office of Elections website. So there's an opportunity to do it that way. Um, we'll all be watching with great interest to see what these these draft maps actually look like.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Read his story at org. Jeff McElena steps down as head of the Blue Planet Foundation at the end of the week. He says, looking back over the past 13 years, Hawaii has made great strides toward a magical thinking future in green energy and sets a model for other communities.
5: We've made a huge evolution in the state from one that was predominantly based on fossil fuel, almost exclusively based on fossil fuel, to leading the nation with the most ambitious targets first, some of the biggest projects and incredible progress. Over the past, you know, decade, decade and a half, you know, we lead the nation in rooftops with solar energy. And interesting, you know, 13 or 14 years ago, the utility was projecting probably a few hundred homes would have rooftop solar. And today we're, you know, at 90,000 homes with rooftop solar.
0: And I have to and chuckle because I know Hawaiian Electric's, you know, predicting, oh, well, we've got to have, you know, rooftop solar <laughs> everywhere. Right. Now,
5: yeah. And now and we don't think twice because it's like we, we know it's the lowest cost option. And now with batteries, it really makes it practical. It can increase our resiliency and we're really seeing a dem- democratization of, of energy in this way. And then similarly with electric vehicles, you know, we had 160 electric vehicles back in 2008, and today we're pushing 17,000. And it, it's soon going to be the new norm where it's just the, the benefits of driving electric far uh, outstrip. Uh, gas cars,
0: and we have watched cities across the country move toward EV with their, you know, buses. You know, with their um, city fleets.
5: That's right, and in Honolulu too. You know, uh, getting uh, its EV buses. We had the first three commercial tour buses with JTB, and now seeing more of those. And that'll that'll really change the just the, the city life when you no longer have these loud, growling diesel buses, but but clean, quiet electrics.
0: As far as how much further you think we have to go? You know,
5: we have a long way to go to, to really reach our decarbonization goals. We've made good progress with electricity. You know, over a third of our electricity comes from rene- renewable sources. On Kauai, it's really exciting where most sunny days, they're running at 100% renewable energy for a few hours. Um, so making good progress there. But where we're falling short is ground transportation and then the big one, which is, which is air travel. Uh, so ground transportation, we see the path forward. It's going to require really making electric vehicles more accessible, making the charging infrastructure more accessible, and then putting that to work to pair with our clean energy on the grid. Uh, and that's the next big step ahead is having that smart platform that can really, you know, utilize and optimize electric vehicles that are on the uh, electricity grid. But then the tough one's going to be air travel. Um, you know, we, we fly... Fly to Hawaii on rivers of oil, essentially. And we have to convert those to either uh, sustainable aviation fuels, biofuels, maybe hydrogen in the future. And some large uh, airplane manufacturers are looking at that. And then inner island, it, it could be electric uh, planes. And there's been some cool test flights in the past uh, year with electric planes, of all things. So yes. a long way to go, but but Hawaii has really set the bar. Um, in you know 2015, when we passed that 100 percent renewable energy law and you know we were called magical thinkers at Blue Planet Foundation and told that there is no Hogwarts school um, we can't power the islands with you know variable renewable energy but we're getting there and we've beat every deadline and every expectation to date and then since then we've seen 12 other states you know adopt nearly identical laws to to Hawaii most recently Illinois adopted a 100% carbon-free electricity standard by 2045. And that's what's so exciting. We literally set the date for decarbonizing our electricity sector across the nation. And now we have a president that's pushing for an even earlier goal, 2035, uh, to push carbon out of our out of our electricity system. So Hawaii can be proud of its if it's disproportionate influence that it's had. And islands are really where this innovation should happen, where we can de-risk policies and programs so they can scale elsewhere. So we can be proud of that. But now we have to follow through and make sure we get there.
0: Well, it's not like we can just pull a magic wand out, you know, like Harry Potter can. It's more like believing in, I guess, what's possible.
5: It, it is. And it's making sure that we have that imagination to see what's, what's what could be possible and then what the science requires. You know, we, we often view these things as radical without appreciating how radical status quo is, you know, where we import some 40 million barrels of oil, some of it from Libya and Russia and other places that don't share our values. And then we turn that oil into, you know, climate changing pollution. That's a pretty radical situation where we can use our renewable resources, homegrown uh, indigenous resources and put them to work. So it is having that imagination for what's possible and then really looking at the science and saying, you know, regardless, we have to make this change. There, there is no plan B. We need to be all in on, on decarbonizing as quickly as possible if we hope to have a, a livable planet. And, and folks will be quick to say, well, you know, Hawaii is relatively small, and it's, it's true, but that's really our superpower. Because again, we can do things in Hawaii that other places uh, maybe can't do so quickly. So by being out front, we can show that it's possible. We can you be the vanguards and show what it looks like, and give others comfort that they can they can do something similar. And again, I, California is a great example. Uh, three years after Hawaii passed its 100% law, California you know passed their 100% law. So you know Hawaii can be like Archimedes, you know, and, and use that long lever uh, to make change happen from a from a small place.
0: The big Nut to crack, though, like you mentioned, is the airline industry. I mean, I I just remember when that solar plane landed here and how amazing that was to think it had, you know, journeyed over thousands of miles across the Pacific. And and you think, gosh, you know, so many jets fly into the islands every day. And could we make this work? Wasn't it like Mokulele that I think is is, uh, entertaining the electric planes?
5: Yep, and there there are a few, uh, and there's a startup company called Ampere that's 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 looking at that in Hawaii. Some in the the mainland, Aviation, great name, uh, for an electric uh, new um, airplane company. But the, the Solar Impulse that that you mentioned is was an exciting story um, because this was this was radical. You know, when they thought about flying around the world using nothing but the sun, it, it's not a matter of just slapping solar panels on an airplane and putting some batteries in place of the seats. You really have to rethink what an airplane is. Uh, and that's exactly what they did, built it from the ground up. Uh, and then people, you know, kind of scoffed at it and said, well, this is ridiculous. This this poor pilot has to, you know, fly up and down depending on the time of day, and that'll never happen. Um, but look back in 1903 with Orville and Wilbur Wright, you know, you look at that contraption and say, well, we're never going to do that. And now we we don't even think twice about packing 400 people, 500 people on a Aluminum tube and jet across the Pacific. So it's coming for sure um, But we really have to reimagine uh, and, and rethink uh, Not only aviation, but then I mean part of it comes back to Hawaii and our, our economy I mean our, our economy really developed hand in hand with fossil fuel, you know jet travel really opened up um, Tourism in Hawaii that was powered by fossil fuel. So what does that look like in a carbon constrained future um and it's possible, but it requires us to make some some tough choices and um, and be out front.
0: And you know there are there are challenges for the green industry, you know the with the large scale solar farms and the windmills because you know communities kind of need to process what this means when they have something you know very large in their community.
5: You're right and and that's that's an area that urgently needs our attention is how do we better have community processes that respect place, respect past injustices, and make sure we go forward in an equitable, fair, fair manner. The truth is our energy is coming home. We used to export both the, the drilling for it, and then we used to export all of our carbon emissions. Um, we, we're, we're no longer going to do that. So it's going to be more present, it's gonna be more visible. Uh, in some ways, that's good because we'll be keeping money here. We'll be keeping jobs here. But in some ways, it means that we're going to have to live with it in our community. So, so what does that look like, and what trade-offs are we willing to make, individuals and communities, uh, to accept projects? And if not, then you know we'll have to look at those trade-offs. It might cost a little bit more. We might then have more offshore wind. There might be other visual impacts. Um, so there, there is a way forward. We just have to be respectful and and really be explicit about the trade-offs we're making. You know, Kauai uh, really went from worst to first when it comes to clean energy. Back in the, two, the aughts, they were the most dependent on fossil fuel, and now they're the least dependent uh, island on fossil fuel. And l- like I mentioned, running many days on 100% renewable energy uh, with a lot of batteries, so using solar energy at night. And so they had the first you know, first in the world really large-scale solar plus battery storage project project um, back half a decade ago. Um, and then subsequently, I've had a number of other projects to, to really let them add a lot of renewable energy to that small island. And they don't have any wind-generated electricity on Kauai uh, because of the, um, the bird mm-hmm. population. So exciting to see, you know, Kauai being this innovator, this small, you know, the, the former backdrop to Fantasy Island is really living out this magical thinking future and making it happen.
0: We have been talking to Jeff Mikulina, whose last day at the Blue Planet Foundation is Friday. He tells us he doesn't have a job lined up, but plans to take a break and spend time with family. Taking over the reins at Blue Planet is Melissa Miyashiro.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to the community's health, providing vaccinations that help to protect against COVID-19. Learn more by calling Queen's vaccination line at 808-691-2222.
6: Medicare open enrollment is starting soon. What does this mean for our seniors? Are there certain medical conditions that aren't covered by Medicare? What's so special about an Advantage plan? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the ins and outs of Medicare. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company committed to supporting the community, supporting local nonprofits, including Aloha United Way. Learn more at auw.org.
0: This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio scientists make an astonishing first-of-its-kind discovery while studying the gas and dust in a triple star system. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence for your Monday Stargazer.
7: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, and also things we can try and spot in our island skies. As usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome
8: back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers, look out for Venus low in the west after sunset, with Jupiter and Saturn visible in the south and east. The moon this week is approaching its full phase, and so spotting faint objects in the night sky is going to become challenging as the week goes on.
7: And is it true you've got news on a planetary discovery involving a triple star system?
8: Yes, it's an unusual one indeed. Astronomers observing a young star system called GW Orionis with the ALMA telescope in Chile were studying the gas and dust in this triple star system when they noticed something disrupting the material and that disruption could only be caused by the presence of a large body. Now. While we've discovered planets in triple star systems before, this would be the first ever confirmed that orbits around all three
7: stars. Wow. Describe what that kind of orbit is and
8: how it's possible. Well, it's pretty crazy. The three stars are (laughs) gravitationally bound together and orbit one another in a rather complex celestial waltz. This planet, though, is on the sidelines of the dance, orbiting far out from all three, but still bound to them by their mutual gravitational pull. And how does the planet even survive with that kind of routine? Well, this planet is young, and I think it got lucky because it's forming way out from the main stars. However, since this is a young star system, it may still be settling down, so to speak. So this planet may not be out of the woods just yet.
7: When it's rotating at such a distance from the stars, is it more exposed to impacts of stuff hitting it? Well, this is precisely the
8: problem with young star systems. They are incredibly violent places. Collisions between newborn planets are common. And indeed, in our own solar system, we went through exactly the same period period. Many of the small rocky worlds in our solar system bear the scars of that violent past in the form of impact craters on their surfaces. And how about the sky up there, man? Well, right now, that planet probably doesn't have a sky or atmosphere, so to speak, <laughs> of, since it's still forming. <laughs> However, it's in a rather dramatic location within the disk of material that's birthing this new solar system, so the view there must be quite spectacular. But this planet is in for a rough ride, and these collisions and disruptions can possibly come its way. That said, the planet is big, probably similar in size to Jupiter, and that will at least give it a fighting chance in this stellar battle royale. Well, we'll be looking
7: for an update and getting it from you. Christopher Phillips, another fun Stargazer report. Thank you.
8: You You're welcome, Dave.
7: And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com
0: Helping 100 million trees to thrive. That's the ambitious goal set by the governor's office, and the deadline is 2030. In order to meet that mark, the state plans to plant or conserve thousands of acres of forest in the coming decade. It's part of a larger statewide strategy to fight climate change. But what's behind that number, 100 million? The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Travis Seidel, Associate Professor of Tropical Forestry and Agroforestry, in order to find out.
6: It's a little bit of a pie-in-the-sky question. So I understand if there isn't an answer. We're trying to reach a goal of 100 million trees by 2030. How many trees do we have now?
9: (laughs) We have millions, for sure. I mean, I think the state probably controls about a million acres of uh, forest lands. And so if you think there are probably hundreds of trees um, per acre of land on some nice, good forests, then you're talking about, you know, maybe 100 million trees or more uh, just on state lands. So we have hundreds of millions of trees, I bet.
6: Then why would we need a additional pledge to conserve or restore or grow 100 million trees by 2030?
9: Sure. So obviously managing our forests, you know, is something that we need to be involved in. They've been affected and highly altered by human activities for a long time, and even now, you know, obviously things like climate change are happening that are certainly affecting our forest and so we need to be out there managing them and sometimes that means uh, planting new trees it means even removing trees we don't want there such as invasive species so all of those things that are mentioned in that pledge you know conserving restoring planting growing all of those are things we do need to do um, not only to maintain the trees we have but to replace trees that we probably are going to need to come down and maybe in the right kind of conditions to expand the forest that we have.
6: As someone who works and understands agroforestry throughout the state, can you back us up a little bit and look at the past couple of decades? In that time, have we been seeing an increase or a decline in the number of trees here in Hawaii? Uh,
9: There was a recent actually study done by some colleagues of mine here at University of Hawaii That actually has found, unfortunately, that we probably have had a net decline in the number of trees in the state, or certainly in terms of good forest cover. While I think there definitely is more interest in planting trees in both urban areas, uh, residential areas as well, and even in agroforestry systems, which mix crops and trees, Just the core area of forest we have in the state probably has declined due to some of the stresses I mentioned previously. Those stresses are only getting worse because new non-native species are introduced almost every day. And, of course, climate change just changes the underlying conditions in which all of these trees and forests have to grow. And so that just puts a stress on the trees and forests that are already there.
6: So what would be the difference in these dual goals of conserving versus planting additional trees. For instance, if we were to plant a thousand ohia, say in an area that had previously been deforested, what would be the benefits to biodiversity or the difference in biodiversity that we would see there as opposed to a old growth ohia forest that we conserve?
9: Right. I mean, you know, I'm going to up front that we should do both for sure we want um, and I think it's a high priority maybe even a higher priority to conserve the good forest that we already have because as you mentioned old trees that have been there a long time provide a tremendous variety and diversity of habitat they probably already are the home of lots of different species and so conserving that forest is probably our highest priority. Reforesting areas um, certainly is something we should consider where we have the management and the dedication to do it and to maintain it. Um, adding trees to the landscape uh, just increases the structural diversity. It captures carbon and energy. It creates a more complex environment generally. And so that provides all kinds of opportunities for other organisms to inhabit um, this new you know, environment as it's growing and uh, diversifying. And so that generally improves diversity. Of course, it depends upon the kinds of trees, the kind of forest, that we're planting and managing.
6: Mm, So you're saying a tree isn't a tree isn't a tree. There's a difference between planting something that is native and for instance, planting eucalyptus.
9: Yeah, there's certainly a lot of differences and that we have a long history of that. I mean, we have some beautiful green hillsides all over the islands here on Hawaii. But if you, you know, from where we're standing in an urban area, looking back in those hills, most of the trees that we see in most of the places we are um, in Hawaii Those trees are going to be primarily a non-native species. We've replanted a lot of the forests in Hawaii, especially on smaller islands such as Oahu and Kauai. And so while we have a lot of forest, lots of those are trees that were planted decades ago. They were trees that could uh, grow in those degraded conditions. And many of them just happened to be non-native species that were just better adapted for growing and being planted um, at the time they were planted in the ground.
6: What's something that you would find in a preserved native forest, an old-growth forest, that you wouldn't find elsewhere?
9: Well, what you would hope to find is not just the native trees in the overstory. You'd hope to find native plants in the understory. Ferns, vines, shrubs, smaller trees, ephemeral plants that may only last for a year or two. The other thing you would hope to find are is regeneration. In other words, those native species aren't just there you see seedlings, you see sprouts, you see the next generation growing in that forest. And, of course, if we're in a nice forest in a relatively protected environment, we hope to find the native wildlife is, uh, there as well, whether it's birds or native bat, insects. We hope to find good habitat for other species as well.
6: Mm. And what about the benefit to us? Ultimately, we are talking about this initiative as one that will fight carbon emissions one will, that will fight climate change. Does it matter to us in terms of the benefits, what kind of trees we plant, or is the goal for humankind in what just just have as many trees as possible? Trees
9: and forests provide a variety of benefits to people. Sometimes we use the term ecosystem services because there are all kinds of services they provide to us, and carbon sequestration is a big one in the context of climate change but it is by no means the only one that we enjoy and that we benefit from. And so native species, because they're well adapted to this place, because this is where they evolved, they're able to provide, in general, a broader suite of those benefits, of those ecosystem services, than just planting perhaps a fast-growing or a large tree um, to try to capture carbon. So, if we're just focusing on carbon, we're really ignoring all those other potential benefits that native forests can provide. You know, a, a number is—it's um, an easy thing to, to put out there, right? It's—you know—it's—it's a—it's an ambitious goal. It's something we can reach for, and it's certainly something that we should strive for. But um, there's a lot behind that number. So, the 100 million trees as a goal is just the beginning.
0: That was the conversation, Savannah Harriman, poet speaking with UH Manoa forestry professor, Travis Idol. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we talk aquaculture and the current state of Hawaii's fish ponds. Do you have a story to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Missed something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us back here tomorrow with more of The Conversation.